Good morning. This morning we began a new series in the Gospel of Mark. So please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Most scholars believe that Mark was the first of our New Testament Gospels to be written, and I agree with that. Early church leaders who mentioned the Gospel of Mark were unanimous that the author of this book was Mark, the disciple of Jesus and companion of Peter and Paul. These early church leaders who lived in the 100s and 200s agree that the content of Mark's Gospel essentially came from Peter. Although we don't know if Mark himself was an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry, the content of the Gospel comes from an eyewitness, namely Peter. Not only that, but along with James and John, Peter was part of Jesus' inner circle. So this Gospel indirectly comes from one of Jesus' closest disciples. In fact, Matthew and Luke apparently had so much respect for the truthfulness of Mark's gospel, they used it in writing their own gospels. With that background, let's begin by reading Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Let's pray. Lord, what an incredible privilege we have to study your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds to whatever you have for us from your word this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 says this story is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As you know, in Jesus' time, they were expecting the coming of a Messiah. They expected this Messiah, or Christ, which is the Greek translation, to be a king over all kings who would deliver them from the Romans. One of the reasons most of the Jewish people ultimately rejected Jesus is because at the end of his life, he stood chained between two Roman soldiers, beaten and bloodied. They expected a Messiah to defeat the Romans, not to be defeated by them. They did not understand the manifold wisdom of God. Jesus would indeed be king over all the earth one day, but he would first defeat Satan, sin, and death through his resurrection from the dead. Mark calls Jesus the Son of God. The phrase, Son of God, can mean different things depending on the context. In Job, sons of God is a reference to angels. Sometimes in the Old Testament, Israel was said to be God's son. Sometimes the king was said to be God's son. So the meaning of Son of God depends on the context. In the context of the Gospels in general, and of Mark 1 in particular, we will see that Mark makes it clear that when he says Jesus was the Son of God, he means that Jesus was like the radiance of God himself, as Hebrews 1 puts it. Or as Jesus would later tell Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In verses 2 and 3, Mark teaches that the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God, was foretold by the prophets. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. 
Some have accused Mark of making a mistake here, since this is actually a combination of two passages. The first part is from Malachi 3.1, and the last part is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. It was common in those days to link passages together based on common themes, like in this case, the messenger theme. Although both passages talk about a messenger preparing the way for the Lord, I think Mark just mentions Isaiah because the Isaiah quote, the word for Lord is Yahweh, the name of God. And that's what Mark wants to emphasize. In other words, the prophecy is about a messenger who would prepare the way for the coming of God. Who was that messenger? Verses 4 to 6 say, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. So the messenger is John the Baptist. He ate wild honey and locusts. The World Economic Forum wants us to eat bugs, so I guess John was way ahead of his time. John's clothing of camel's hair was not common in his day. It would not be considered acceptable attire in the Jerusalem Hilton, even if there was such a thing in John's day. So why would John dress in a way that would have seemed odd in his time? 2 Kings 1.8 describes the prophet Elijah as, quote, a man with a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. John was presenting himself as a prophet in the tradition of Elijah. John was preparing the way for the Lord by calling people to repent and be baptized. John's baptism seems to have been something new in Jewish culture. Jewish baptisms were self-administered. In other words, the people stepped down into one of the many public pools called mikveh, and they either poured water over their own, their, their own heads or they dunked themselves under water for purification. And Jewish baptisms were not just one-time events. They were done regularly before entering the temple and offering sacrifices. By contrast, John's baptism was a one-time event administered by John. It was also a baptism of repentance. As I've said many times before, repentance comes from a Greek word literally meaning a change of mind, or as we might say, a change of heart. It is when we begin to see sin as the horrible thing God says it is, and we don't want to live like that anymore. Instead, we sincerely want and determine with God's help to live a life pleasing to the Lord. That is repentance. Verse 7, And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John the Baptist says he's preparing the way for someone who is even greater than he is. John wasn't being conceited here. He was so well known that even King Herod Antipas knew of him and had him beheaded. In fact, the first century Jewish historian, Josephus, even knew of John the Baptist. After Herod had been defeated by the king of Petra, Josephus wrote about how Herod killed John, saying, Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God 
and very justly as a punishment of what Herod did against John, who was called the Baptist. For Herod killed him. John was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, but as to righteousness toward one another and piety toward God, and to come for baptism. So John was a well-known and well-respected prophet in Jesus' time. In fact, later, Jesus would call John the greatest of the prophets. And yet, John says he's not worthy to even stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals, a job so menial it would normally be done by slaves. In verse 8, John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. People in John's day wouldn't have understood this. I'm not sure John even understood it. But it was fulfilled after Jesus' resurrection at the Feast of Pentecost, when tongues of fire rested on Jesus' followers, and they spoke in languages they had never learned. The book of Acts calls this the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that seems to be what John was predicting. Okay, so according to Mark, John the Baptist is the messenger foretold by the prophets. Isaiah said the messenger would prepare the way for Yahweh, or God. So who was John preparing the way for? Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So John the Baptist was the messenger preparing the way for God, whom Mark identifies as Jesus. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. This, of course, raises the perpetual question, if Jesus was without sin, why did he come to John for a baptism of repentance? Well, in 1 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that Jesus became sin for us. That doesn't mean Jesus was a sinner. It means that, like a sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament, Jesus took on our sin and died in our place. So in his baptism, Jesus may be identifying himself with us in our sin. It may also be that Jesus was giving us an example to follow. Even though Jesus had done nothing to repent of, we do. And, Jesus should, and we should follow his examples. We should also note that in all four Gospels, Jesus' baptism was, pre, was presented as the beginning of his public ministry a ministry that was then approved by God, as we see in verses 10 and 11. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now notice in these verses that the Father speaks from heaven, the Holy Spirit of God comes down from heaven and descends on Jesus, whom Mark has identified as being one with God. Here, in a nutshell, is the Trinity, one and only one God, existing at the same time as Father, Son, and Spirit. Critics will sometimes argue with the word Trinity never appears in the Bible, and they're right. The word Trinity was created by theologians long after Bible times to describe the kind of biblical teaching about the Father, Son, and Spirit 
that we see here in Mark chapter 1 and elsewhere in the New Testament. The idea of the Trinity is in the Bible, even if the word Trinity is not. In verse 11, God tells Jesus, you are my son. There's a theological heresy known as adoptionism, which teaches that Jesus was just an ordinary human being before his baptism, but that he became the son of God at his baptism. This is simply not what the New Testament teaches. In Mark 1.11, the father tells Jesus, you are my son, not you have become my son. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus did not become God or the son of God at his baptism. He was already God, not only before his baptism, but even before his birth. Verses 12 and 13 say, At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended to him. When the text says that Jesus was in the wilderness, we're not talking about some place like the Boundary Waters. The wilderness of Judea is a rugged, barren, and rocky area with lots of scraggly shrubs and high cliffs filled with caves. It can be quite hot in the summertime, and there are very few trees, so shade was hard to come by unless you stayed in a cave. Water was also hard to come by. Verse 12 says, The Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. The English Standard Version says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Where according to verse 13, he was tempted by Satan. This was not the only time Jesus was tempted by Satan, of course. But I think this was Satan's initial attempt to destroy Jesus' ministry right from the start. Satan's attempt failed miserably. But 13 raises another question. Verse 13 raises another question. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil. So if Jesus is God, how could he be tempted? One answer is that the Greek word tempted can mean either tempted or tested, depending on the context. The difference is that testing is external and temptation is internal. So, for example, if someone offered me some chocolate cake with fluffy white frosting, my favorite, I would certainly be tempted to eat it. If someone offered me a million dollars to kill one of my grandchildren, that would be a test, but it would not be tempting to me at all. No amount of money could ever tempt me to kill my grandchildren. So one of my professors taught that Jesus was tested outwardly, but he was never tempted to sin inwardly. I disagree. When Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. That's not just talking about outward testing. That's about real temptation. So, for example, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, he prays that God would remove this cup from him. 
That's not just outward testing to avoid the cross. That's genuine internal temptation to avoid the agony and torture of the cross. But that doesn't answer the question of how Jesus could be tempted if Jesus was God and God cannot be tempted. The answer is that Jesus was fully God, but also fully human. In his human side, he was able to experience temptation. And remember, temptation by itself is not sin. Jesus understands by experience what we go through because he himself was tempted. Now, what I want you to see in our passage this morning is that Mark opened his gospel with Old Testament quotations about how a special messenger would prepare the way for the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark says John the Baptist was that messenger, preparing the way for Jesus, the Son of God, as foretold by the prophets. Mark begins his gospel introducing Jesus not only as Messiah, but also as God. People in Jesus' time thought the Messiah would be a totally human king. Jesus wasn't executed because he claimed to be the Messiah. He was executed for blasphemy because he claimed to be God. In John 10.33, Jesus' enemies said, We're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Mark was just teaching what Jesus himself had taught. So what lessons do we learn from this passage? First, Mark's main point in this passage is to teach us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, whose coming was proclaimed by John the Baptist as foretold in the Old Testament. Jesus' identity and ministry were affirmed by the Father and Spirit, and Jesus withstood the assaults of Satan himself in the wilderness. As the New Testament scholar Robert Stein puts it, Jesus was announced by John the Baptist, anointed by the Spirit, acknowledged by the Father, and approved by testing in the wilderness. Those are the main points of our message this morning. Mark will develop and defend these points throughout his gospel. Second, we learn something about the importance of baptism here. If it was important to Jesus that he be baptized, even though he had nothing to repent of, shouldn't it be important for us to follow his example in baptism? I won't belabor this point, since I spent a whole sermon on it a few weeks ago, but how can we claim to be sincerely committed to Christ if we're not even willing to take the first step of obedience and be baptized? If you've never been baptized and would like to be, Please come and talk to me about it. Third, Jesus is not like some mythical God who is so distant and removed from us that he doesn't understand what we go through. His life and temptation show that we have a high priest, as Hebrews calls him, who understands and can empathize with us in our trials and temptations because he experienced severe trials and temptations too. That doesn't mean that Jesus excuses our sin. Some people seem to have the attitude that they can continue a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, and they think that's okay because Jesus understands our struggles. Yes, Jesus does understand our struggles, and yet he did not sin. And just like John the Baptist, 
Jesus calls us to repent of our sins and turn away from them. But the Lord also knows firsthand the kind of temptations we're facing. My last lesson has to do with the fact that Jesus was not just tempted. He was tempted directly by Satan himself. Not all temptation comes directly from Satan, of course. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Jesus didn't have a sin nature, so the source of his temptation was not a sinful nature, but Satan himself. Although the source of much of our temptation is from our own sinful nature, we should be aware that Satan is our adversary too. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In other words, we need to be aware that our adversary, Satan, wants to destroy us just as he wanted to destroy Jesus. And one way he tries to do that is by tempting us to sin. So James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. According to Matthew and Luke, Jesus did that by quoting scripture. You can also resist the devil by not allowing yourself to be in compromising positions in the first place. You can also resist the devil by asking someone to hold you accountable. You might also resist the devil in specific situations by putting internet blocking software on your computer. Whatever you do, understand that sin is not just a minor thing. Like a roaring lion, Satan wants to destroy you, just as he wanted to destroy Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us increasing desire and power to resist the devil day by day. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.